What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I feel like it's been a while since I've done one of these. It's been a week, 10 days. Anyways, good to be back. Good to have you back. Miss you guys. Um, today's guest is Eric Kaysen. Uh, I just came across Eric this week. I listened to the interview with him on Citizen Bitcoin podcast with Brady uh, and was pretty blown away. It was a super uh, interesting and entertaining conversation. If you haven't yet checked that out, I highly recommend you go have a listen. And as soon as I finished, I hopped on Twitter and hit up Eric and basically just said, dude, I'd love to chat. And uh, he obliged. So we set it up. And he writes, so he, he used to work at Coinbase. I think from 2013 to 2017, and now he he writes uh, on his blog, CryptoSovereignty.org. He really kind of goes deep on the implications, the philosophical implications of uh, of this whole Bitcoin phenomenon, and uh, you know that's right up my alley. I love that kind of stuff. So uh, I consumed a bunch of his writing prior to the discussion, and uh, he had, he told me he had two hours, so I, we went right to the the end of the line. Used every last minute and uh, just had a really fun, enjoyable, interesting uh, conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy it as well. See ya. Let's do it. Uh, well, first of all, man, thanks for, for taking the time. I, I uh, heard you for the first time actually on uh, Brady's Citizen Bitcoin show the other day and uh, just really, really enjoyed the discussion. And that's why I hit you up as soon as I finished that uh, so that I could pick your brain a little bit. Cool, man. Um, so I think, you know, there's probably a decent amount of overlap between our audiences, but, uh, so I don't want to spend too much time on, uh, you know, kind of your, the, the, the intricacies of, of your background and the Coinbase stuff and, and things of that nature. But I do think obviously it's important to have a bit of context for this conversation for people that may not have, uh, caught that episode. So, you know, why don't you hit us with the, uh, the background blurb? Yeah, the, the quick short of it is is uh, I found Bitcoin after kind of being part of the, the Occupy movement and watching that fail. Uh, and I started looking for a, essentially a non-state money and, and Bitcoin kind of presented itself. So I started investing slowly in it. And then uh, in 2013, an opportunity came up to start working at Coinbase. So I, I was actually one of the, the first support guys working at Coinbase. And I stayed there for the next four years, eventually being the support manager and helping uh, build out their team. And it was, it was really fascinating because I, I got to meet all kinds of people who were moving and shaking. And uh, I felt very privileged because, you know, essentially I felt like I had a, 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 front, a front seat to this gigantic event. Uh, and, you know, particularly not being uh, a software engineer or something, it uh, was really valuable to be able to pick the brains of these guys and really kind of develop my own thoughts and stuff. Uh, so pretty much after leaving Coinbase, uh, I started working on my own essays because I I was really curious about uh, like what what's going on uh, philosophically with all of this and like yeah. that that's what really intrigues me is uh, there there's something very very profound going on here that's past just creating a, a non-state money and I actually think that it's uh, Essentially, like we're we're watching the reformation of a new kind of law that isn't tied to nation-state sovereignty as it has been for the last three hundred years. Um, so I have a whole series of essays, kind of exploring those topics and other social and philosophical ramifications of, of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I read most of them last night or over the last two days, and uh, they're very very interesting. But just you know, on the kind of, on, on your background part, you left Coinbase in 17, right? And 
yep. you know, what have you been up to other than, you know, writing on the blog? What, what kind of takes up the majority of your time these days? Are you, you know, working again in the space or are you just pursuing personal interests? No, just personal interests. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a dad and I, I have a newborn right now and a five-year-old. And so mo- most of my time and energy goes towards that. Um, you know, and just because of my, my involvement with Bitcoin, I've been fortunate enough to be able to take some time off and to, to focus on other things. And I think that that uh, I feel extremely privileged because uh, very few times in our life do we actually get to take a step back and look at who we are and what we're doing and what we're working on. And uh, I talked with my wife a bit about this, like Bitcoin's really changed me as a person because of the opportunities it's given to me. Uh, and, and I'm at the place where like the, the next job I'm taking is because I, I really love what the company is up to. And, uh, as much as I've really wanted to step back in recently, uh, you know, I, I working at Coinbase had its difficulties and, and I got burned a bit there. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, you know, like I, I really love helping and supporting people get into Bitcoin and understand it better, which is part of my motivation with my essays. But, uh, yeah, I've been I've been looking at, at different opportunities uh, at a couple of different startups that I really like in the space that are really Bitcoin only startups. Uh, and I've been talking with some of them about possibly joining so that that might come down the pipeline. But for the most part, I'm at a place where uh, the only stuff I want to work on now is stuff that I'm, I'm passionate about and that I really love. And I feel very privileged that Bitcoin has given me the opportunity to be able to, to do that. So to answer your question, more or less, I've just been kind of dadding, writing my crazy <laughs> essays and uh, and having some really cool conversations with, with different, you know, really small operations, whether it's like one or two guys or a team of maybe eight or 10. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see kind of the developments that have been going on in the space right now versus like in 2017 when it was pretty much any harebrained idea. Somebody was popping a blockchain on and being like, we raised a hundred million dollars. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you mentioned something, you know, and this comes up so often, but I think it it bears uh, discussing, you know, because even though it comes up often, I don't think it gets that much. Uh, it doesn't get fleshed out that much. But you mentioned, you know, uh, what you you said to your wife, and uh, I've I've heard this or read this in some other stuff you put out, and that, you know, you you would be a, a, an angrier person uh, without Bitcoin. And in addition to that, I know, you know, a lot of people, the, the, the mental health spec it is obviously a spectrum, right? It's not a binary. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know, so some people might, uh, might characterize waking up in the morning and just being down low energy, not looking forward to the day as, you know, a, 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 on the depressive sort of scale of things. Other people might characterize it differently, but I, I've had so many conversations where people were in that kind of a state because they looked out on the world and they thought, wow, this is so incredibly fucked. And, you know, I don't see a method for unfucking it, right? The protesting doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The political uh, actions don't work. Um, And that, you know, that was a very, that that shaded a lot of people's reality with, uh, you know, a, a shade of gray. And, when they begin, when they come across Bitcoin and they really start to get it, um, that, you know, very palpably begins to change to the point where the more they get it, the more it changes. And now that, you know, the, the nature of the conversations I have with a lot of people are that of excitement, enthusiasm, joy, hopefulness, gratitude, you know, all of these really great emotions that typically characterize a very positive mental state. 
And it's, you know, there, there are many of them, not to say there's not other good things happening in people's lives, but that kind of macro level impact was due to interacting with Bitcoin and understanding the implications that it represents. And, you know, because you have articulated that, I was wondering if you could expand on it a bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to be honest, so after the whole Occupy thing, uh, I got into it because I was actually uh, like going into a manic cycle on a bipolar episode. And so like I was sleeping two hours a night. I was popping out of bed feeling 100 percent. You know, I uh, actually at the same time, I, I had uh, done a failed bid for a, a senatorial run based out of San Francisco at the time because I, w- I was out of my mind. Right. Um, and kind of as occupying all this stuff started to fall apart, I went into a crippling depression. You know, like I could, I could barely pull myself out of bed in the morning. And, and sort of in this interim period, you know, like I, in this crushing depression, I started kind of looking for stuff. And this is when Bitcoin started to come up and I started reading and I started getting more interested. And, and in a lot of ways, it's really what pulled me out of it. And I remember another thing that my, my wife told me when I first started looking at it and thinking about investing it. Um, I was super broke. Like I, I was actually working for my father-in-law at a moving company, making like 15 bucks an hour. Um, and, you know, I, I was really depressed. And when I started looking at Bitcoin and thinking about it, I remember talking to my wife and, and uh, I was actually considering taking out like high interest loans to buy Bitcoin at the time. Uh, and this was like in like early 2013, I think. And I remember we started talking about it and she was like, look, she was like, if, if you don't take this risk and like Bitcoin, you know, shoots off to a thousand dollars or whatever, she was like, you're going to really regret it. She was like, but if you buy this and you lose like half your money, she was like, it's going to suck and it's going to be really hard. But, uh, she was like, I, I don't, I don't think, I think if you pass this up, you'll really regret it. And she was right. So, Man, you know, what I, a gem. The loan. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love her and I'm very happy that. She's the mother of my children. Um, you know, and so I did it. And one of the things I really got with that is like, as we take upon ourselves to actually take the fundamental risk of like, you know, I've, I've had my wealth in Bitcoin for years now. And uh, people are always almost shocked at that. And it's, uh, it's this personal decision to kind of cross the Rubicon and be like, look, like, I don't, I don't want to rely on this legacy system anymore because of how criminal it is. Mm-hmm. and how horrible what it's doing across the board um you know and so so in all of this darkness and turmoil when i found bitcoin it 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 really helped me grab on to something because of the assurances and guarantees that like the the code fundamentally assures and i recognized that that was something so much more than any government could offer us at this point in time uh, and, and like in, at university, I studied international relations and, and I really wanted to go in to be a diplomat. But as I started to see like what the United States had done over the past 80 years internationally, I, I really lost my motivation and started to turn against it because of, of how wrong things I'd seen were there. And so I, I, you know, I guess the, the full spectrum of Bitcoin really gave me hope in a way that nothing else could. And, and I've also found in my conversations with other Bitcoiners that, uh, it's like this shilling point of hope. Yeah. And I mean, even if people aren't uh, like Bitcoin maximalists or, or they're just in crypto in general, uh, I think that's fantastic because it gets people looking at it and working together. Uh, and like, I think it's a shilling point. I, I think it's important that people come into crypto and explore these shit coins and lose some money or, or even gain a lot of money, but that they really start to look past uh, 
frankly, kind of the, the, the banal aspects of making money. Because, like, you know, there's a lot of money to be made here, and, and it's fine to do that. But I think people really need to start looking past that about, um, you know, and for me, this is, is one of the things is that, like, getting rich off this stuff is cool, but creating the next financial system that makes sure that my grandchildren are part of a system that only has 21 million units, that's the most important thing to me because it's clear that, you know, our, our government's just going to fire up the printing press for really whatever cause that they have for themselves at this point. And, you know, looking back on, on what our country is going to be from the year 2030, like I'm, I'm really afraid. And if we didn't have Bitcoin, my goodness, I, I don't even want to think of where I would be, you know? Yeah. Cause like I, I worked at a bank call center for, for a little bit kind of in the interim as, as a temp worker. And I'd probably still be there if I didn't find Bitcoin. And I, I hated it. It, it yeah, I, 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 it's, it's really scary looking into that abyss of like what happened if I didn't find Bitcoin. Cause I, yeah, I would, I'd be really angry. Uh, I'd probably also be like a far leftist still, and I probably would have never had any turn away from that either, which I also think is pretty dangerous. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, I mean, I gotta, dude, I gotta wonder what it was like, and I'm not trying to harp on, on your experience and you don't have to share it if, if you don't like, but like coming out of that type of a, a mental health situation and then getting into this extremely nascent, you know, broadly misunderstood form of magic internet money. I mean, the people in your, I mean, did you have to rationalize this to the people in your life? And did they, I mean, cause I'm just thinking if I didn't understand it, that would be even greater cause for concern. It's just like gambling, right? That that's how many people would think of it. Or were you able to articulate, you know, kind of why it was meaningful to you even, even at that time? Uh, I could definitely articulate it, but uh, the problem was with, with my general state of mental health in conjunction with uh you know, just who the people are around me that surround me that I love, uh, you know, they saw this and they're like, look, like we, they're like, we, we think you're going through a mental health crisis. Like we, we think that, you know, this Bitcoin thing, it, it's interesting, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't put your life savings in it, you know? And, and it was interesting because I realized that there was this kind of firm break where I was like, oh, like this is, I'm doing something so far past what they believe in, in terms of risk mm. that like they can't even do it. Um, and I guess like the, the equivalent is, is I, I really love to ski and trying to huck yourself off of a, a, you know, a really steep pitched mountain when you've never done it before. Like it, it seems insane. It seems like you're going to legitimately kill yourself. Uh, but if you actually know what you're doing and you're somewhat in control, like th there's something really spectacular that you get to experience there. Uh, you know, and I had something similar with money where I realized, look, I can take all this money and, and put it at a substantial risk and be able to make a substantial gain with that risk. But I have to take that on and I have to feel comfortable with that risk. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think because I understood the technology and like, I'm not a software engineer, but you know, I, I know my way around a code base and I, I can copy pasta stuff pretty good. Uh, so like I understood fundamentally what was going on. And for me, I felt like that reduced the risk. And furthermore, with all of my education in international relations and international economics, I kept looking at this and I was like, look, this thing, it assures me it, it can't produce more coins. Like every single Satoshi, I can trace back to um, an amount of work that was done for it as part of this supply schedule. And so for me, looking at it and understanding the way that, that 
you know, and this was eight years ago before the Federal Reserve really started kicking up the printing press in a serious way. Uh, I felt confident that that was going to happen at some point in time. Uh, and so pretty much I decided, you know, let, let's, let's do it. Let's go full bore. And I had a lot of friends that were like, this is crazy, man. You're going to lose a ton of money. Uh, I remember after I'd been involved for a while, I had a really great friend who, a uh, very smart guy out in New York. He has his own business. Uh, I, and, and I always looked up to him and we sat down for lunch one day. You know, I told him all my investments at this point in time, I, I was pretty deep in the black. Unlike the price, you know, the, the price was maybe around a thousand dollars at the time. He was like, dude, you've done great. He was like, get out, like, don't do this. You're going to lose a ton of money. You know, I'm like, this was a guy I really loved and respected. And I had to sit back for a minute and I had to go, you know what, man, like you're, you're wrong. And, and I've put my money on the line and if I'm wrong, I'm going to get burned. But if not, I give myself an opportunity to do something way bigger than I ever thought I was going to be able to do, mm. you know, cause, cause I don't, I don't have any special skills, uh, in terms of, of being able to, to build programs or something. I, I do think I'm good at, at, at customer service and support and being empathetic and that stuff, but it's hard to really sell that skill set. So I really thought I was just going to be stuck as, you know, a grunt worker doing support work for the rest of my life. And the fact that Bitcoin gave me this opportunity, I feel so privileged about. And like, I seriously, like several times a week, I, I stop and I say, thank you, Satoshi. Thank you for building this beautiful and incredible system that has given me so much opportunity and I really want to share that with others, you know, and like uh, I've traveled internationally a lot in my life and in the United States, we got it pretty good, you know, but I remember when I was traveling in Burma in 2008, like I, I was in an ice cream shop eating ice cream with my, my tour guide and this military person came into the ice cream shop and had a casual conversation with the lady at the counter, took all of her money and left. And then she broke down sobbing. And, you know, I, through my, my tour guide, I realized like she had just gotten shaken down and robbed. Wow. And that's like a real thing that happens to people in developing countries all around the world. And while Bitcoin can't necessarily prevent that, it at least gives them a method towards which they can resist it. And so, you know, I see we're at the very, very beginning of all of this. And like we... You, me, everybody doing podcasts and, and participating in this, like we're all kind of the foot soldiers of this really coming epic battle for money and wealth and like what it means to control it. And, and eventually, in my opinion, this all comes down eventually to sovereignty itself and creating uh, essentially like new forms of organization in order to be able to protect ourselves in ways that governments can no longer assure us. And that while that's meaningful in the United States, I think it's way more meaningful in a country like Burma where they, you know, their semblance of government is uh, much more tyrannical than anything we've really directly experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I've had the opportunity to travel pretty broadly as well. And, I, you know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But at the same time, you know, no, no country, country has kind of the leverage of power that even, even though, you know, if you're living under the system in the United States, you may think, you know, obviously you're relatively fortunate, but, you know, there is, it's almost like you, you could, that's the, that's the biggest thing to fix, right? Because these little central banks in, in countries like Burma and stuff, like they'll, they'll just be a domino when the rest of them fall. That's not going to be a big battle, right? But wresting the power from those that really have the control over it, that's, 
that's the really big thing. And kind of on, you know, on top of that is engaging with Bitcoin. I've, I've always been extremely curious. And part of the reason why I got into Bitcoin was because I looked out on the world and said, what the fuck, you know, like this, what yeah. the hell is going on? Uh, but even as kind of that kind of mindset that I had, the further I engage with Bitcoin and the further I learn, and, you know, as you know, you're always gaining new insights, angles, different kind of offshoots down the rabbit hole. Um, you, you begin to see the, just how much the existing system is suppressing, um, you know, basically the, the ability of the individual to express himself in all forms. And, um, you know, one of the things I like, or I, I thought was interesting about your writing, and maybe it's a good time to break into this is, and you just touched on it is that, you know, not just separating money and state, which will, you know, mean there's less money to fund wars and the free market should be able to flourish. But in that the, the architecture of Bitcoin and the, the, you know, the cryptography that it uses has kind of a messianic um, element to it. If you, if you kind of, if you dig all the way down. So, you know, maybe I could get you to expand on that a little bit because it's a kind of a, it's a very interesting thought. Absolutely. You know, I'm like, uh, I find the the moment that you use words like messianic or, or theological, a lot of people kind of like retract in horror, like, oh God, this, this is a crazy religious guy. Right. Uh, and I think what's really important is that like these terminologies I'm actually extracting from continental philosophy. And like they, they have particular terminology in there, which is related to the religious context. But uh, I, I guess so to touch on the messianic part, like right now today, if uh, we were to like have Bitcoin being successful in the world, really all that means to us are there's a lot more Bitcoiners and a lot more people that choose to hold their wealth in Bitcoin. Uh, and funny enough, like this actually relates back to, to the economic principle of Gremsham's law, which is this idea of that, like if you have two types of legal tender that you can use that, that are equally exchangeable, uh, the one that's more valuable will vanish from supply because that's the one people want to keep and they want to spend the bad money. So Gremsham's law, you know, it, it was always kind of surmised as the the good money pushes out the bad. And when you actually like put that subjectively onto like all monetary systems, and if people are all to choose Bitcoin over their own fiat money, well, like pretty much everything changes overnight. Like central banks start to unravel; they can't tap. Like all of this really crazy stuff happens. Uh, but furthermore, like the, there are these other things that I find way more fascinating is like if we get to the year 2200, you know, 180 years out into the future, Bitcoin is still going to have the same stable supply issuance. Like, what does that mean for a, a global economy that like they can actually have that sort of security behind money? Uh, and so like, I really think that that Bitcoin in terms of its messianic properties, like it offers this promise that like it can't go back on of that, like it guarantees the monetary issuance of supply. It uses the cryptography to assure your privacy. Uh, and like it, it does these things that radically passes any sort of social agreement that we have with governments because our governments can always withdraw that agreement from us for any reason they choose, you know, and I'm pretty pedantic in my writing about this idea of the sovereign exception. Uh, and, and like, that's one of the most unique things about sovereignty is that, uh, the, the norm and the rule doesn't determine sovereignty. It's the exception that determines it. 
And so a great example is here in the United States, any of us can be labeled as an enemy combatant. And like once that happens, you can be stripped of your, all of your rights. You can be stripped of your property. You can be thrown in a prison cell and never get habeas corpus. You know, like it, it's a really dangerous and dramatic situation. Uh, and that's not true with Bitcoin. Like the, if you control your private key, that money is yours, period. There, there's no methodology to create a sovereign exception to go outside of that. That dumbass Craig Wright might think that there are ways to do legal jurisdictions around it, but it's not true. Um, you know, and, and, and then when you expand furthermore on this, like what, what does it mean to have a uh, cryptography that protects our privacy irregardless of what the law says, irregardless of, of what politics are going on? Uh, and I think all of these are, are just really, really important questions, uh, that I've just kind of been flailing through on my own, you know? You know, my, my great goal is to hopefully find other crazy people similar to me to be able to, to collaborate and do more work around this. Because, as I said before, as cool as all of the, the developments going on in, in Bitcoin right now are, like, I'm really curious about these philosophical questions that, mm -hmm. for some reason, have been sitting in the background for a very long time and seem to be very pertinent and important. Uh, and I think it's just because, again, we're super early in the development of all of this. Um, it's funny. I remember when I showed up at Coinbase, I was like, Oh, like maybe I missed the boat, you know, like maybe this is a lot farther along than I thought. And now I'm realizing it's the total opposite. Like, you know, the, the boat isn't even remotely full. Nonetheless, it hasn't set sail yet. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you, you've been asking, you've been kind of moving the chess pieces, several pieces forward in your writing you know, which is awesome. And it very much appeals to someone like me, because I'm, I always try to think about, like, what are the implications of this thing? All right, go, go even deeper. All right, go even deeper. All right, go even deeper. And like, really try to play this out to, 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 and of course, that's a never ending process, right? Like, we, we will probably <clears throat> never understand or never be able to imagine the full implications of, of this thing until they are manifest and we can behold them, so at least some of them, right? We will be able to hint at it and we'll be able to, you know, kind of dance around it, but some of them probably won't be available to us until they actually exist. But, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the, in the, the deeper implications of this. And, you know, one of the, um, I took this quote out of context, so it's not going to make probably the, I, it's probably not going to make too much sense when I read it out, but one of the, your pieces you said, uh, you know, the metaphysical power that God enabled in the world. Uh, and then, you know, there were some other uh, little bit, a few more words. And then so we can realize that our choices and preference have the capacity to change the world. And you're, you're, you know, what that, what made, what that made me think is what does the fact that something like Bitcoin is even possible say about what destiny was made available to humans by whatever force governs the ordering of the universe. Now I know that's like super, you know, heady or, or cosmic sort of thought, but you know, why, why is that possible? And then how does it interact with human behavior and what implications does that have? I mean, I, I love the question and I love thinking about this stuff too. Um, you know, to, to me, what it really means is, uh, so, like, my entire path through this has been through the philosophy of this guy, Giorgio Ambigen, who has this, uh, he has this whole series of books he writes called Homo Sacer, which means the sacred man in Latin. But he's, like, tracing the archaeology of these people in history who could be, like, legally killed but not sacrificed. And part of his whole 
deal with it is deconstructing the idea of the state and how it reserves this right for itself to kill people. Uh, and to me, like that's one of the inherent problems with sovereignty in the way that it functions. And so essentially, like metaphysically, the fact that cryptography exists like as this technology that actually keeps us safe and secure and helps us uh, but like at virtue at rest of how it is. And furthermore, like we can trace this through the entire lineage of Western history, like from Caesar's shift cipher all the way up through the modern day uh, is like this kind of like hysterical Loki jester God thing at the, and like the way that I've always seen it is uh, like Spinoza in a lot of ways was like the first nihilist. And uh, I always hate that nihilism. People are like, oh, this, it's this corrupted idea where like they, there's no good, there's no evil, that like everything's topsy-turvy. And it's not so much that, but it's to, to sort of like insist that like, look, like nature itself like has this idea and this premonition for us to be able to like empower ourselves and like change the world and our lives and everything. And so like the fact that Bitcoin was able to kind of pop up uh, also, like exactly at this right time, um, like I think is hilarious, and I think is is like it's part of this incredible metaphysical dance of like what the human condition is, and the way that like we've constantly been engaged in war, and we're like always trying to trap and oppress the other, and that like at the very end, there's this technology that's just like you know what, fuck it, like we're just gonna make it so that like privacy is absolutely guaranteed by like the mathematics and physics of the universe. And that, like, if you want to violate somebody like that, it's just not even possible. And to, like, have this technology present itself right at the dawn of, you know, what I've been calling the, the, the digital panoptic age, where, like, we're trying to monitor everyone for everything all the time and essentially, like, trap humanity inside of this tiny cage that we can monitor everything inside of them. Uh, you know, it, it does seem messianic to me that, that cryptography presents itself in this way. And, uh, you know, something that really influenced me was uh, an early Coinbase employee wrote a, a paper uh, uh, essentially kind of making this declaration that, like, this thing called the CypherNet is going to come up, where this self-encrypted sovereign internet that, like, is for itself and itself alone, it, like, is going to produce itself. And I actually think that's true, you know, and I think that, like, as... Uh, this brinkmanship between us and the state escalates for them to want to control and monitor everything uh, that we're just going to blind them in the end. And that like, essentially like it's going to be like, Oh, you want everything? Well now, now you're going to get nothing. And like, while I have no idea how this war sort of plays out and what it presents, uh, I feel very confident that the, the actual encryption techniques that we're using, the methodologies that they're being deployed, the ways that, uh, Bitcoin explicitly and crypto more widely is dealing with all of these issues, I think is phenomenal. I mean, the simple fact of the way that we uh, have very much moved forward the curve of the development of cryptography over the last 10 years explicitly because of Bitcoin, I think it's part of that. And I, and I very sincerely believe from uh, a messianic standpoint that like, this is a technology that gives us direct access to the metaphysical guarantees of what is at the bottom of cryptography. And like that is this mathematically assured formula of privacy. And, and even more importantly, 
is now that we have this digital synthetic asset inside of Bitcoin, like we fundamentally and cleanly divide uh, the capacity to separate economic wealth from direct violence. And like that's never been done in all of human history. There's always been an ability to put the clamps down on somebody and usually get their money. You know, like there, there were techniques for people to hide gold and other things, but you know, nothing even remotely similar to Bitcoin. And so as we develop more and more into this, I, I do fundamentally believe like it becomes theological at some point in time, simply because governments are not gods period. You know, like they they don't deserve the capacity to be able to make money up and reward it to their friends. And I've actually been working on a piece that, that tries to talk etymologically about the separation between money and wealth and like the, what the term wealth actually means isn't for like some finite amount of money, but it actually means like the, the totality of what it means to have the security of something of knowing that that's available for you in the future of the assurance of the law. You know, and that's actually part of the term commonwealth itself. And in Latin, it's a uh, res publica, which means like the public thing, which even on the back end, it's even more fascinating that like the Bitcoin blockchain is this public thing. And in a lot of ways, the most public thing, anybody can access this public database more so than any other public database that's ever existed before. And like that's, that's philosophically and phenomenologically important. Yeah, I, I think about you know, the point you mentioned a couple, just a few sentences ago about how this is the first time where, you know, wealth has been kind of separated from, uh, you know, the ability to be seized upon. I'm not sure exactly the terminology you use, but I, and I try to imagine the, you know, fast forward that and understand the implications. Like, yes, of course, you defund the state and there's less war, but, you know, you look back in wars throughout history and, you know, you've mentioned this before as well, is that, you know, the first thing you do is you go get the gold of the person that you just conquered. And in many cases, that's one of the prime reasons you do so. And even if we're talking about, you know, disputes in society generally, you know, disputes that become violent because you owe somebody something and you didn't pay them back or and they're trying to come and get it by force or, you know, so many different examples of that dynamic. And when you remove the ability for property or wealth to be taken via force, you know, what kind of a society it, it becomes erected around that? I, I have to think a really, really great one. It's certainly an improvement from the one we currently have. I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's so hard even to get our, our mind there because it's like it's so crazy per se from our perspective because uh, we've been so thoroughly conditioned around uh, this idea of like authority and decree and like the, the the ability for legal violence to be extolled upon somebody. Uh, and, you know, it's really sad when you realize like how, uh, for lack of a better word, brainwashed we are around that, like that's, that's an appropriate idea. Uh, and like, while I don't, you know, like Bitcoin can be seized. We've, we've seen it seized from a number of people like Ross Holbrook and other, although they didn't get his full fortune, but uh, you know, and I think it shows that, that it becomes much more difficult. And for me, like, I think what ends up happening is that like, they eventually become some sort of a political organization that like forces this into the legal realm so that there is an actual recognized legal political right that like we can own Bitcoin, it can be private and that like that can't be extracted from us. And I do think that that is an eventual uh, 
powerful and important aspect of this. But I also think more importantly is uh, really trying to get people to move towards an ethical praxis of understanding, look, like my money and my wealth is mine. You know, like the bank doesn't have a right to steal it from me because it's in an account. The government doesn't have a right to steal it from me because they think they have a right to tax me some amount. Uh, and furthermore, you know, I, I think it's really important that we have these conversations amongst ourselves um, because like as this escalates, I think uh, like I, I, I don't see how the Fed can print out the m- amount of money that they have and that this doesn't cause for hyperinflation. And I also see don't see how that hyperinflationary tendency isn't going to get a dynamic feedback loop with Bitcoin because it'll be, you know, Bitcoin will be worth 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, and so on and so on. And eventually governments will want to directly seize on that. And I think that when that starts to happen will be when the politicization also starts to happen. Mm -hmm. When we start to see affinity movements to say, no, like we need to get it legally recognized that the government doesn't have a right to entrap you, to steal your Bitcoin, to do all of these really crazy extrajudicial processes right now that we don't have any protection from. And I think the the sort of final bulk word against that is, uh, and I and I just had an, an article come out in Citadel 21 on this, is about privacy, you know, and that Bitcoin has pushed to the forefront this idea of privacy and what it means and how it functions and explicitly the cryptography in it. And so eventually we're going to, to get into this position with the state where we go, okay, how, how much can they violate our privacy? Should we even let them do it at all? And I actually think because of the way that we've seen such gross and rampant violations of people's privacy around all sorts of things, we're, we're pretty much just going to put cryptography at the heart of it and say, there, now you assholes are blind and we won't give you anything ever because you insisted on such gross and rampant violations of people's rights and privacy that we just won't work with you anymore, period. And we'll make it so the technology doesn't work with you at all either. Uh, And I think this creates for, uh, like, getting to this new society, it's not going to be as fluid or as painless as we would like it to be. Sure. But I do think it it will eventually cause for this new society to be produced. Yeah, I think think we all have, like, those types of fears. You know, we see, it's, it's, we see what's going on now, particularly with COVID, but, you know, many of us have been tracking this for far before that and, you know, saw the cracks emerging and realized the faults in the system, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's so easy to look back on, you know, let's call it, you know, pre-World War II Germany. And you, you, the, the, the bias of history, you look back and you say, oh yeah, I mean, how, you know, of course, hyperinflation happened there. Of course, financial collapse happened there. Of course, you know, authoritarian, governments and genocide and this and that happened there because it's so easy to see the pattern that led to it through the lens of history. And it's so, it's fascinating and it's scary in our day to day around what's happening now. And you see the government printing 10, 20, 30, 40 plus percent of GDP to quote unquote, stimulate the economy. And as long as things aren't falling down around people, uh, the perception is that things are more or less normal or okay until they're catastrophically not. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, of course, we're all apprehensive about what a transition looks like. And of course, you know, all we can really do is, is manage our own and try to, you know, try to get more people on the, on the life raft with us. But, 
it's uh it's hard to imagine it doesn't unravel in a in a pretty you know pretty horrible way yeah i mean uh it's funny that that you bring up uh pre-world war ii germany because i mean when they started printing money out i think in 1919 there was like a good two years that uh the the german right was able to just print out this money and that it didn't have a substantial effect effect on inflation and then 1922 like that stuff all started ballooning and going into hyperinflation very quickly uh and i think like we're gonna have something pretty similar here in the united states because you can't produce that amount of money and have it not flow into the economy and change things rapidly. You know, like while I think we're going to experience deflation anywhere from six months to 18 months because of the way that the velocity of money has dropped so precipitously, I think that once it starts back up um, in conjunction with like what both the Russians and Chinese are doing, like uh, I think the days are just numbered on the U S dollars, extraordinary privilege. And like, as that comes to an end and a new monetary system, uh, really led probably by the by the Russians and the Chinese and a few others to to move away from the Brenton Woods agreement and towards something else. I think that's when we're going to start really seeing convulsions in our economy in pretty extreme ways. Uh, and one of the things that worries me the most is, you know, I, I talk with a lot of different finance guys, and uh, there's this interesting view that like stuff doesn't really go past three months and they kind of recognize that like things will be bad but there's almost this like fantastical idea that there will just be this sort of v-shaped recovery somehow uh and and they they really don't want to look at you know like we have unemployment now that's greater than the great depression you know like we've we've never seen or experienced anything like that and keep in mind that like the, the Great Depression lasted for, for pretty much a decade. And we only got out of that because there was this massive war that happened with huge amounts of government spending that was actually getting money into the pockets of people. You know, the, this government spending, it, it's really just a crime. You know, the, yeah. the, the fact that Boeing gets, what was it, $25 billion and mm-hmm. they get to like lay off all their employees. We, we, we've seen this stuff over and over. And so... Uh, the thing that scares me the most, and again, one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled about Bitcoin is with its like quote non-political aspect of it. You know, like I can execute my full politics just by buying and holding Bitcoin and telling other people about it. Uh, like if I had to actually have like a political movement to respond to any of this, like we're doomed. Yeah, you know, we, we exist in a two-party totalitarian state, uh, and I find it fascinating that people still desperately cling to this pathetic excuse of democracy. When like, okay, like if we're a democracy, like why didn't we vote on the allocation of like the Fed's money? Like if we're a democracy, like why are there all these unelected officials that are making these decrees that like keep us locked up in our homes? And like, you know, COVID's obviously dangerous and it's killing a lot of people. And, you know, this is a real pandemic, but I'm really confused at like how the nanny state produced itself so ferociously and instead of them being like, look, we recommend you stay at home. We're going to pay you money to stay at home. If you go out, please wear a mask. Uh, and I would be all for this like advocation. But the place that it gets crazy to me is the fact that like they can lock me up if I don't stay in my home. Like they, they can hurt me if I don't obey. They're not even laws, but like these orders. And this is a lot of what my work deals with is uh, like, this is what the sovereign exception is. It's where like an executive authority gets to make some decree 
And instead of it actually like following a real legal pathway, like it just becomes law. And like, that's really dangerous. There's a reason that part of the Nuremberg trials was teasing apart this idea of that, like the Fuhrer's word is law because of how dangerous it was. And yet we're doing something very similar to that here in the United States right now. And again, while this is a real emergency and it does mean that we have to respond thoughtfully to it, uh, it seems to be a very, very grave mistake to like give governments this universal power in conjunction with like they shut everything down and they don't get to tell us when we can return. Um, and so like, to me, this all smacks really deeply of a general totalitarianism that we're moving towards. And I think unless uh, people start resisting pretty firmly that we're going to see a lot more erosion of rights in pretty dramatic ways. And I, and I do think financial ownership is going to be part of that. And so uh, I think Bitcoiners are going to have to be put on the defensive a bit in order for us to become offensive. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think we'll need to see people get their coins seized. We'll need to see uh, governments essentially like try to, to take people's Bitcoin in the same way that we saw with executive order 6102 with the seizures of gold in 1933. Uh, and I think once we see that, I think there is going to be the political willpower for people to start actively resisting and changing. And I also think at that point, that's where we're going to start seeing some really cool and dramatic changes, you know, and, and also, you know, see the price of Bitcoin 10x, 20x, 30x. Because I think what we really need more than anything is a very strong, frankly, political movement that demands the sovereignty of our money is recognized and to severely tie and limit the power of government. Mm. But again, I don't think we'll see that until uh, we start actively being punished for our viewpoints. Yeah. Do you, do you give any thought to, you know, getting out of Dodge as it were, you know, cause one of the, one of the things that Bitcoin offers is this incredible optionality that you can basically just pick up sticks hop on an airplane and wind up anywhere in the world and you can, you know, you can transact. Do you give any thought to, you know, the kind of jurisdictional arbitrage should things get, you know, more uh, dire than, than you'd like to tolerate with you and your family? You know, I've thought about it and uh, the big conclusion I've came to for myself is that uh, if I run away, my, my kids just have to come back to something much worse. You know, if I, if not me, who, you know, if not now, when, and, uh, so while I have thought about it and, you know, it has been appealing the idea of fleeing off to New Zealand and just creating a little life there, it's just not the answer, unfortunately, you know, and as much as, uh, you know, and frankly, like I've had a lot of reluctancy about publishing my writings and stuff because of kind of how extreme they are, but I eventually just got to, to a place where I was like, look, like I, this stuff has came to me. I have a responsibility to put it out there. And furthermore, like as all of this picks up steam and develops itself, like I have a real responsibility to be here and protect the the values and ideals that I believe in, you know? And so while, uh, you know, running off into the forest and like making my own private little life sounds very appealing. Yep. <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no glory in that. There's no winning. You know, I, I recently finished another one of those uh, philosophical books by, by Giorgio Ambigen, and this one w was uh, called The Highest Poverty, and it was about, like, forms of monastic life, 
and one of the points he makes in there is, is uh, it was classically seen uh, that like hermitage versus the communal life, like hermitage was almost a cop out because like you can't actually create the utopian community or ideals of God on your own. Like you need a community for that. And when I read that, I was like, oh, okay. Like that's why I can't flee off into the forest is because as beautiful as a life that I would make for myself, uh, it's not, it can't even compare to the beauty of trying to build this with other Bitcoiners and create a very real community that has the actual solidarity around what Bitcoin is and how that presents itself in the world. You know, and I do think that this eventually becomes uh, even against what Nick Sabat says, like this actually becomes a community and it becomes a community, not, not because of the locus that it has, but because of the real ethical praxis that it operates from, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's uh, at the bottom of that ethical praxis is like, our mutual acknowledgement that like there is a God, he does love us and he is beautiful because he gave us this incredible technology that so artfully puts together mathematical principles that like it actually protects us in this really fundamental and critical way. Mm -hmm. And when you say God there, are you referring to Satoshi or a, a grander God? Uh, A grander God, you know, like, as I said earlier, uh, like I very much believe in the Spinozan idea of nature, which is that like all of the goodness and things that we need from God are presented directly in nature as part of like his grand plan. And mm-hmm. part of that is, is like the fundamental physics and the, the mathematical nature of like what has been done like that in itself is what I would call God, you know, because I am totally assured of these principles because of how they operate and how we understand them. Uh, and I've had other people point out, they're like, well, you can't totally know that because of the way that like cryptography can always be broken or change, but it's more about this, uh, back and forth and the development of trying to make it stronger, of always trying to improve it, of trying to make it better. And in a lot of ways, like that's also, uh, the idea of like what a monastic life with God is, is that, uh, in this same book that I was reading, uh, the highest poverty, he's kind of trying to trace the archeology span of monks. And part of the idea of the life of a monk is that uh, like all of their time is occupied with like incessant prayer and always trying to keep God at the forefront of their thought and always trying to improve and better. And a lot of ways, like I think that's what Bitcoin is, you know, with the the hashing that's occurring are these like uh, permutations of prayer towards God of trying to find this hash of this nearly impossible to find number that like one is granted and furthermore, the way that it's all secured by these things. Um, and again, I get that that word God is like a really loaded term for a lot of people. Uh, and I guess if I had to use a, a different word for it, I would just say like the fundamental nature of existence or, or right, whatever else. Right. Help people feel comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, back to the point about, you know, getting out of Dodge. <clears throat> it's like when, when you answer that question, I almost hate the answer because there's such a pull to be like, fuck this shit. Like th- this, this is just too insane. And if you have the means of, you know, extricating yourself from it, you know, why not? Why put up with the headache basically? But, you know, I know that you're right when you say that, you know, and, and you're and the way in which you articulated in particular really kind of struck me is there's, there's no glory in that, you know, there's no glory in, in just leaving the problem uh, alone, 
you know, and not being a part, <clears throat> excuse me, of the solution. And, you know, I don't know how it'll play out for me personally in, in my own life. I may not want to be in the thick of it at all times. You know, there, it's just, there may be circumstantial things that kind of force my hand a bit, but, you know, if, if we can't make this a solution for everybody, then it's almost like, what's the point? I mean, on the flip side, you know, if you could, if you can save some people, then, you know, that's perhaps a worthy goal as well. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, I think is what I'm trying to say. Well, you know, and like, I'm, I, I've never been one to like, we need to convert everybody and get everybody to be Bitcoiners. Like, I, I just don't think that's practical. In addition to uh, like one of kind of my, my darker thoughts is uh, like, I think people are very dumb. Uh, and like, and I don't do that to like put people down or to, to be mean, but I really think a lot of people have uh, been so thoroughly trained to have forgot what critical thought is or how it functions that like most people can't do it. And so like, I'm, I'm not interested in 90% of the population. I'm, I'm interested in the 10% that really want to learn and understand for themselves. And my great hope is, is that like we start to create a pretty radicalized individual Bitcoin community where, where Bitcoiners choose to live with each other, they choose to transact with each other, and more and more we start to kind of have these communal and shared lives. Um, you know, and, and also like the, the appeal of saying fuck it and like running off into the woods and having this beautiful life by yourself, is, it's, it's extremely appealing. Yeah. But you know, there, there is no glory in it in conjunction with... Um, like I actually think we're at an extremely critical point in human history right now. And I think because like we live in it, it seems so, it doesn't seem as fantastical as it really is. But like the fact that I can remember a world without the internet is really important because I don't think there will ever be a world again without the internet. And so like living at this juncture is really important because also like as we're seeing the acceleration of AI technology and of surveillance software and all this other stuff, I do believe there's like actually two really extreme versions of the world that we get to live in. And like one is a super scary 1984 Panopticon style, uh, a boot stomping on a human face forever. And I think one of the things is, is that as people, we, we really don't think descending into that totally is possible. And I think that's extremely dangerous. Uh, I was recently reading Hannah Ardent's uh, Judgment and Responsibility. She has an essay in there, Personal Responsibility and Dictatorship. And, and in it, she talks about how at the start of the Nazi regime, the idea of the whole Holocaust happening was so fucking insane to them, mm -hmm. so far removed from anything even remotely possible that they just couldn't put that in their head. And then furthermore, that like the thing that was the real betrayal that happened in that process was watching all of these people's friends turn against them and like empower this apparatus. And, you know, like I, I think it's really dangerous that we can go in this direction because like with what coronavirus is and how it's functioning, uh, and again, it's super dangerous and we need to be aware of it. But I really do worry about, you know, does the government come in in two years and be like, all right, everybody gets their vaccinations and they get the special digital tattoo so that like we can track everybody all the time for whatever reason we choose. Yeah. Uh, you know, or another example is uh, the, the weaker people and the cultural genocide that the Chinese are conducting against them. You know, like 
that's that's millions and millions of people that have been put under this really insane panopticon that controls most of their lives. And I think that that's a risk for most of humanity if we don't deploy these really robust privacy protecting softwares. And furthermore, like as Americans, I actually think that like we have an explicit purpose and right in the global theater to push this stuff out and really, you know, like uh, the political dream that I have is we get some sort of radical centralist technology political party that makes it about modernizing all of our infrastructure and making these super powerful privacy protecting wealth protecting softwares and protocols and like pushing that stuff out into the globe. You know, like I imagine if the United States went back to, instead of a gold standard, like a Bitcoin standard and really encouraged other, you know, our, our allies and other global powers to use Bitcoin as their base currency. Like I actually think we would see some really incredible and powerful liberalizations of policies across the globe. In addition to like wrecking these socialist economies that have been so oppressive to their own people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think you're right in what you said a few minutes ago and, you know, and again, like I, I'm not intentionally trying to disparage, you know, the vast majority of the population either, but the fact is it certainly seems like uh, critical thinking is uh, fairly absent from, you know, the way in which they conduct their lives oftentimes. And again, coronavirus is a pretty great example of that. I mean, most of the people that I have these discussions with, um, they're, they're almost entirely unquestioning, unquestioning about, you know, government action with regards to the economy, with regards to the changing of laws, with regards to restricting movement. Um, and it's very much a herd mentality. And back to the example you referenced about, you know, people in Germany, you know, prior to the Holocaust, you know, it would, it would seem unthinkable until, you know, things slowly or even kind of quickly change. And because everybody is, is on board, nobody's thinking, you know, critically about this and very few people have, you know, the courage to be the odd man out or, you know, to, to, to kick up a fuss about any of this because of the very real consequences of doing so, whether they be social or, or, you know, political, um, these things are allowed to happen and go way further than, than they should. And to the detriment of, of everybody. And, you know, to your, your point about a kind of a political movement, I agree. I think, you know, once Bitcoiners become sufficiently capitalized and, uh, spread, you know, there's a few more of them and maybe the situation has gotten worse. I think there'll be motivation, you know, to do that Mo mostly as kind of a transitionary phase, because I think, Ultimately, Bitcoin dissolves a lot of uh, what we currently see as, you know, state apparatus, you know, state structures. But I think in the interim period where a lot of, you know, a lot of people are going to be so used to operating and engaging in that form of, of political discourse and, and just engaging in the political process in that way, it's probably going to be a perhaps a necessary, uh, necessary means in order to transition to something different, whatever that might be. Yeah. You know, like, I don't, I don't think it's necessary. Like I, I think it'll vastly speed up the process, but I mean, uh, I think the way Bitcoin's been plugging along for the last 10 years has worked relatively well. And like, we could keep going on this way for a while. I just think it's going to take a lot longer if we don't, uh, directly politicize it in conjunction with, uh, like we can lose, you know, like that, 
that is a reality. And uh, I think it's really important to understand that because in the same way that like we can get trapped in this panopticon where like Western liberal powers like pretty much implement Chinese style surveillance and, and go in that direction like that, that can happen. And so like, I do think there's a danger of uh, just being like, you know, may, you know, it, it'll develop on itself. And so that's one of the reasons I, I've been uh, trying to push this idea of some sort of a political movement around Bitcoin. Cause I think it's really important in addition to the fact that like, I don't think, I don't think most people understand that like Bitcoin at its core is actually like a political movement. I think a lot of people, they, they get the money part and the other things, but like they don't dig deep enough to go, Oh, like the idea that Bitcoin has a fixed monetary supply, like that's an explicit political statement. Right. You know, the idea that cryptography is like baked into Bitcoin directly, like is also a political statement. And I think these are really important things because, uh, you know, most people are sheep and most people haven't thought critically about these things. And, and I think they can think critically about them. They've just never really been given an opportunity. Um, and so I, I, I think just the, the general encouragement for people to get involved to buy Bitcoin, to try to understand it, to try to understand what your rights are is really important. Um, do I have faith that the general population is going to get on with it? No, but I do have faith that a large enough, indignant minority will get on board that like we can actually create ourselves into a, a form of political power explicitly in the United States, you know, and like, I, I can't speak to, to, to other countries, but I feel very strongly that in the United States, our historic context, which has helped make us into a nation, there's a very strong capacity to try to integrate Bitcoin, not necessarily into the political structure, but to create uh, the legal rights and protections that it, you know, frankly, it should have on its face, but that we're actually going to have to go fight for directly. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's, it's one of the things that gives me hope is, you know, as Bitcoiners, we often think like, you know, we're, we're here and we're waiting for everybody else. But the fact is, is that the, the people that came before us were waiting for us, you know, and they saw us come in and begin, you know, learning about this thing and changing our opinions and our, our views. Like, you know, you said you were, you know, kind of very left um, earlier in your life before Bitcoin. You know, I was, I was kind of like that, like my, my thinking or my opinions on policies were very liberal, although it was countered by, I always thought the solutions were individual in, in, in a weird way, like I didn't think the state should be doing so much, but if we're just like, if we just take policy per, per, for policy, I was very much, you know, left. And um, it's interesting to, and hopeful to me to watch people come into the space um, and maybe they come in for orange coin, good number go up, right? Greed. It, it, it's such a, the fact that this movement ha, ha, is aligned with, individual self-interest and greed is is a great thing in my opinion because that's going to bring in a lot of people and then they begin to understand the deeper meaning and implications of this thing and you know this is a subject that i really like digging into and most recently dug into it on a, on a at a conference but uh it is the individual change that's inspired by engaging with this thing and it sounds totally crazy to an outsider it's like you, you're you're it's it's just 
you know, you're engaging with this digital protocol. Like why, how could it possibly change your life in the manner in which you're describing it? But the fact of the matter is that it's very consistently does. And just, of course, that's a slow process and it's a trickle at first, but I'm hopeful that, you know, if, if this, if this maintains itself, if this remains consistent across a lot of the people that come into this space, then slowly but surely, you know, people that perhaps previously didn't consider these things were not that, you know, very critical thinkers are that's can start to change and turn around and they can start to develop new opinions and more independent opinions and then engage in, in a broader community that's doing the same. You know, I love to look at this community and I know a lot of people hate that word, but like, look, I'm not suggesting it means we all think and act the same or have an obligation to do so. As you said, it's kind of a shelling point on a number of different things where we're just arriving at, you know, certain ways of thinking or conclusions that are, are connecting us in a certain way. And, um, it's, it's really interesting to see this global group of people that are, you know, uh, have are developing very similar perspectives uh, on this thing. And as a result of that are interacting, you know, very enthusiastically and sharing ideas and also vigorously, um, you know, smashing ideas together because we realize the importance of doing so, you know, nothing is holy. You've got to put it on the table and smash it together. And whichever one breaks, you let go, you leave that one and you, you work with the one that remains. And so that's what makes me hopeful that, you know, some of this can be turned around is that this is an ongoing process. We're not waiting for things to happen. We are the happening, you and I, and everybody, you know, that's listening and who's, who's has come before us. And the more people that come into it, you know, the, the, the greater that swells and grows. And of course that, you know, that's a good thing in my opinion. Oh yeah. You know, and I, I think that greed function is uh, like, it, it, it's so explicitly tied into this because a great example are, uh, I think there's a number of people that come in for, you know, orange coin go up, they make their 50, hundred percent profit, they sell and they leave. And like, that's the end of the story. But I also think that there's this other contingent. They see it go up 50, hundred percent. They go, Whoa, like what, what is going on here? Like, why can this gain so much? Why is it so different? And all of these questions start coming up. And as they investigate it, they go, oh, like this thing can yield me this much profit because like it's, it's an actual piece of technology that's like fundamentally changing the entire financial system. So now I believe that it can go up a thousand percent or a 10,000 percent or a hundred thousand percent. And to me, like that's, that's the most key and critical turning for somebody uh, to start making the choice to like keep their wealth in Bitcoin and to feel more secure with the guarantees that Bitcoin offers over other systems, including other cryptos. It's like I think it's really important that people come in to to Bitcoin and they look at stuff like Ethereum or uh, Litecoin or, or whatever else and to really start doing this process on their own. Um, while the danger is that like they get captured in, in all of that other fluff. Uh, I think it's really important that people can go into that, uh, lose money, make money, do whatever, but be able to really retreat back into Bitcoin and go, Oh, okay. Like there's a reason that Bitcoin started all of this. There's a reason that all of these currencies have exchange rates with Bitcoin directly. And there's a reason why all of these other currencies can't make the same guarantees as Bitcoin. You know, like, uh, I think I've said before, like, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm a Bitcoin majoritarian because uh, I, I think there's a ton of cool and interesting crypto projects out there. Uh, I'm much more skeptical about them over Bitcoin 
But I do think that they're important with the developments that they do. And furthermore, that they prove the dangers that Bitcoin's warned against. You know, like uh, I've watched Ethereum develop and, and everything it's become. And I think it's, uh, I think it's really interesting that most ETH heads that I talk to don't have a strong background in Austrian economics or economics otherwise. And I find that uh, it's interesting that they're not nearly as uh, focused on the idea of how the supply changes, what Vitalik's role in Ethereum is. All these uh, sort of edge case and exceptions, if you will, that, that I actually think are much more important. You know, like I think the DAO hack and how Vitalik and team dealt with that was a real critical watershed moment for Ethereum. Uh, that, you know, it, it, it brings a lot of doubt into my mind in the future that if, uh, you know, if there was another ro large robbery on Ethereum or uh, if the state came in to try to take money, like, I, I wonder what they would do with that, sure. you know, and, and that's just a question that's been opened up because of historic ways that they've dealt with it. Same thing with pretty much every other project that has a founder. Like, you know, I'm pretty much, I wonder what happens when the clamps come down from the state for any number of reasons. And that's one of the, and so like being able to do all this investigation is part of what had me, you know, always keep my back foot on Bitcoin and, you know, keep all of my wealth there. And I think it was important that, you know, there were opportunities to, to dump it all into Ethereum for huge gains or dump it all into Monero for huge gains. Because if you do that and you get your hands chopped off, you come back to, to Bitcoin, you go, well, I, I now understand why it was so important that, yeah. you know, all of these things work that way. Um, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think we'll ever go into like a unitary Bitcoin only environment. Like I think all the other crypto stuff is here to stay pretty much forever. Uh, with that being said, I, I've always thought that Bitcoin and uh, other cryptocurrencies had kind of a dynamic feedback cycle where essentially like, while it looks like uh, these other currencies are having gains against Bitcoin, you know, like you just got to zoom out more. And I think uh, uh, essentially that the, the exchange rate between Bitcoin and other cryptos like actually help push more wealth into Bitcoin over the long term. And uh, I think that that's part of kind of the, the important cycle for it. The other thing that I think is really important is uh, this term crypto. Like, I actually think it's hilarious because of like the, the etymology of the actual word crypto and that it means secret. And that like, there's all these people out there like pushing like their own shit coin that like isn't anything like crypto, but essentially like that gets people looking into it and investigating it more and eventually finding Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm interested in, in the concept of truth generally. But of course, as it applies to Bitcoin, and I'm going to just read a, a few sentences from one of your pieces. And uh, basically it says, Bitcoin is a novus order, ordo seclorum, where truth, not authority, becomes the renewed source of legitimacy for all people everywhere. Bitcoin is a new form of political, economic, and moral organization that raises truth to being the only sacrosanct of any law. Bitcoin does this through returning truth to its preeminent place as the foundation of all social contracts and the meaning of truth in such agreements through the cryptographic formula of verification. Nice. I'm happy I wrote that. Uh, it sounds good, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like essentially uh, 
so a lot of this is actually pulled from uh, like the original theory of the state presented by Thomas Hobbes. Uh, and he does that in his Magnus Opus Leviathan. And in it, it's pretty interesting. Like near the end, he like pretty flippantly surmises uh, like what creates sovereign power. And uh, the, the Latin terminology is actoris not viertus fact legitum, which translates to, to uh, authority, not truth, creates legitimacy. Um, that's like fundamentally part of the idea of that, like the sovereign makes the decision and then like that, that is it. Like the truth doesn't have anything to do it, do with it. And so like inverting that same formula that Hobbes has to say, well, actually, no, truth is the, the bearer of all true legitimacy, not authority. You like fundamentally break that idea of like how the social contract is actually created. And like this was being able to create this new social contract with Bitcoin. Uh, like to me, this is the most fascinating thing because in a lot of ways, like I think what Bitcoin is, is like this uh, super language project that like creates a word, essentially like whatever, like a transactional hash is, is that word. But it's like a word for every single individualized thing that ever happens in the system. And so like this creates a sort of, uh, lexica where like all things can be referred to immediately and totally. And what's so important about that is, is that it, it makes the entire system into this kind of panopticon so that everything can be monitored so that there is a canonical chain of truth. And like, there's no way to get away from that canonical chain of truth. Like if you want to create a transaction in Bitcoin, like the private key has to be available in order to like make that statement. There's no other way to fundamentally do it. Uh, and that's this really critical aspect of embedding truth as the purveyor of its total legitimacy, you know, and that connects all the way back even to the fact that Satoshi hasn't moved any of his coins and promised not to move any of those coins and that we see that 10 years into the future, it's just going to become more and more powerful as we go farther and farther along in conjunction with the fact that the system continues to function, that like nobody has been able to break the protocol itself to steal coins. And so now that this creates this totally new function where like truth itself at the bottom of Bitcoin is what makes it so powerful. And, and really, it's it's just an equation of truth and accounting. You know, like we can trace all of these units, the exact amount of power that was used to mine it, wherever it's been, all the way back to its source. The, the simple truth is, is you can't do that with any dollars anywhere in our system or euros or anything else, because it always comes back to this place of like, oh, well, this bank held some money. And so we fractionally reserved willy nilly created more money. Uh, and it, and like when you start actually looking at the the fundamental accounting errors like at the bottom of fiat money systems, to me that's really the kind of the eye opening experience of where it's like oh, like this is all actually just a graft. Like you you guys like make up all of these terms and like all of these different things that you want to do in this system to like be able to try to legitimize it. But the truth is is that you just use an authoritarian decree to like make an actual accounting error to enrich yourself or your friends or somebody else. Yeah. And it's just, <clears throat> that is on full display right now, right? Like more so than ever, I guess. Oh, it, the nakedness of it, I find terrifying. Right. You know, like the, 
the thing I'm really afraid of right now is uh, like, I'm afraid that like the nakedness of all of this is, is like part of the general truth is that we all know it's a graph. We all know it's criminal and none of us will do anything to stop it. Yeah. That like, we're all actually so chicken shit and callous and <laughs> spineless that the, this is just the robbery that will go on. These are the sort of political violations we'll become used to. And it terrifies me, you know, and it terrifies me that I'm part of that too. You know, like I'm, I'm not here with like my sword declaring war against the whole fiat monetary system. I'm, I'm also sitting here hesitantly trying to figure out how to solve it and, and fearful around it. And I think part of that is, is, uh, like this panopticon apparatus that is the internet is like so hyper powerful at this point that I think anytime it like really focuses in on anybody, uh, like it, it can pretty much destroy them. So it's almost like we don't even have this capacity for a powerful leader to stand up and make the charge against these things, which again kind of folds back into Bitcoin and why I think the way that Satoshi presented Bitcoin and protected his anonymity and stepped away at, at, such a critical time is so important in helping fulfill all of these things. Cause I also think one of the most important features of Bitcoin is this ability of pseudo anonymity and this ability to turn away from the gaze of the state and that all powerful eye and to refuse the capacity of letting it identify you. Cause I actually think that uh, like the primary power of the state and the sovereign apparatus like is identity and that like, Identity is the very first move that it uses in order to be able to extol power upon you in whatever way it wants to do that, whether it be health, housing, biology, political, sure. economic, educational, like it must identify you first in order to be able to apply that against you. Mm -hmm. And because Bitcoin can turn away from that, it offers this really radical and powerful way to uh, essentially kind of weaponize anonymity in this very powerful political way because of the way that uh, the state will attack us and our identity directly for the sort of political movements that we do mm -hmm. under the rubric of our identity. Yeah. But, you know, and I share the sentiment of, of seeing these kind of egregious abuses or thefts or whatever you want to call them and thinking, you know, I'm, such a chicken shit, you know, what, what am I, I'm sitting here whining about it and I'm not doing shit about it, but don't you think that, you know, in a Bitcoin world, and it seems like we've been given this option uniquely for the first time, because every other time in history, that's had to be the response at some point, it just gets too much and it's pitchfork time. Right. Uh, but this gives us the opportunity where, you know, it's as uh, I think it was, was it Nick Carter? wrote a most peaceful revolution where, you know, yeah, the, 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 the protest is really just to stack sats, <laughs> you know, it's uh, and I'm not saying that's all ever, but at this point, it's like, what is you protesting or you doing whatever, you know, form of protest other than that, it, what effectiveness is it going to have? You're just going to be demonized and you're going to be dealt with versus, you know, actually, you know, uh, resting your your wealth or funding an, an alternative system that at some point may be you know sufficient enough to to actually you know defund or combat in some way because you know I, of course i agree like i see everything that's going on and one it's maddening how how little pushback there is even verbally from people you know when i engage in these discussions with my quote-unquote normie friends like almost nobody 
has much of a problem with, you know, a $3 trillion bailout or stimulus package or debt levels or any of that. It's just not, it doesn't sink in somehow, but let's even, let's assume it, it even does. It's like, what, what better option is there than to, you know, than to, you know, quietly stack your sats. Well, I mean, like, I think that that's, uh, this is sort of kind of another one of those hilarious ontological things, like at the very bottom is that like, cause, cause we live in this totally corrupted world. That's like made everything into consumerism and economics that like, there's nothing left. And so like with there being nothing left except for that, like the most powerful thing that we can do is actually starting to stack stats and convert ourselves into this new economic system. Cause like, I remember early on, I always thought about like, look, if like if these assholes want to make it about money, like let's make it about money and like, let's make a better money system in there. So let's give people better guarantees than theirs. So let's give people greater assurances than theirs. And over time that's going to work. And so I do think stacking stacks is, is the most powerful political movement that people can make. And I think that, uh, like it's naturally going to gain traction and it's naturally going to politicize itself at some point. And that, uh, and furthermore that, you know, the, not everybody's going to get on board. A lot of people are going to want to stay in these old ways of thinking and systems because of what they think it offers them. And that's fine. Like I actually think, uh, like at, at Bitcoin operating at its apex, you know, like it, it's continually deflationary that pretty much all fiat money's become relatively inflationary. And that essentially like pretty much every year governments have to like print out a new bulk load of money to like buy some small portion of Bitcoin to like help back their reserves. And essentially like the entire monetary system moves back to a gold standard using Bitcoin because people force that onto them. And I do think that, that that is an actual active standpoint that people can take. And I think furthermore that like, uh, like just getting involved with Bitcoin, like it, it sort of causes for this eventual development where people start to care more about their privacy, where people start to use encrypted technology more people that a lot of these values start to get teased out and changed. Um, and I think it's really powerful and important because, uh, you know, like I grew up in a really liberal family, like that's, that was always the right idea. That's just what was presented. And it wasn't until I started really owning my own wealth and watching these things that I started to move away from this idea that uh, like our all powerful government can actually be our savior. And then I moved towards this idea that maybe through the government taking that idea that it's our all powerful savior, they actually can make themselves into a pretty big tyrant. Uh, and I found this sort of flipping of the script for myself where instead of me making so many excuses for the state and the abuses that it could, I started to really question them. And if there was a different way that things could happen, you know, and, and I ultimately, you know, like I'm, uh, I'm a full scale anarchist. Like I don't, I don't think the state's good for anything except for violence. And I do fundamentally believe that if we totally got rid of the state, that we would find alternative methods and forms to organize ourselves. And so for me, the most powerful thing that could ever happen would be uh, essentially that like the state being like, look, like Bitcoin owners are like the sovereign owners of their wealth. We have no right to track that or trace that or try to extol that from people. And furthermore, like we separate our monetary system totally from that. You know, like I think that that alone would essentially cause for the state to cripple itself. Like, I, I don't think there's any way for the state to even exist today without uh, needing to eat seniorage from printing of new money in conjunction with 
the hearty amounts of taxes that they put down. You know, like we we have this huge military that that spans across the entire globe that's so so wasteful. And I, you know, I sincerely wonder like if as Americans we didn't have to pay for that, like how much more money would be left for everything else. Yeah. And I don't think uh, you know, and this is again where it kind of comes back to uh these religious ideas is that like people people have to want this for themselves, you know, like there, there's only so much I can do in trying to like convert somebody, if you will, you know, and furthermore that like the, the ability to save yourself is like an, an individual thing, you know, so much so to the extent of that, like now um, it's interesting when normies want to talk to me about Bitcoin or whatever. Cause like, I'm, I'm pretty hesitant with like my own uh, investment in like really getting them to bite off. Uh, and I've noticed that like something that's really different for me now is like, I sincerely pity people that like ask me about this stuff, but don't commit to buying Bitcoin or putting wealth in it because of their own fears around it, you know? And, and I, I very sincerely pity them, you know, because like they, they don't want to step away from this idea that like the state and fiat money uh, is like, isn't like there's, there's all this inherent risk that's actually there that they don't want to look at. And so uh, I think it's really important that uh, this is work that people do on their own for themselves in order to try to understand economics and money better, you know, and if they don't, that's too bad. Maybe they'll come back when Bitcoin's at $30,000 and have another conversation. You know, the door is always going to be open. It's just going to be too bad for them. <laughs> the fair is And this is where I also see, yeah. And this is where I also see a lot of corollaries with religious stuff is that like, uh, this is sort of my own proselytization of the process and trying to like convert people, if you will, to being Bitcoiners. And furthermore, like my own spiritual praxis around it and my own beliefs. Um, and I think that it's all important. And and most importantly, like what it's given for me in it, in the way that it's opened up this positivity and uh, this renewed faith and zeal and like who my God is and what he does in the world means so much to me just because I, it feels great to be closer to that idea and to feel good about the world and to feel good about our capacity to be able to realistically change it in a meaningful way, you know, because I, I sincerely think Bitcoin is one of the brightest spots, if not the brightest spot in the hope for the future to make, to make a pretty beautiful world in a life, you know, because if we didn't have Bitcoin and all this stuff was going on, I would be, really really scared for what it means for my children and for their future yeah yeah i i couldn't agree more with that and you know it's it's a another one of those peculiar we touched on it a bit but it's one of those peculiar phenomenon that excuse me seems to be emerging um yeah pretty much everywhere uh, when you reach a certain point of engagement and understanding with this thing but you mentioned kind of that it's a, a spiritual practice and then actually in one of your pieces um you know you said it's a spiritual practice that does not ask for trust but verification and we must ask ourselves what does cryptographic proof offer to man that he cannot offer himself and you know that's that's certainly one kind of pointed question to ask around that but the you know the fact is a lot of people are are starting to question like i am starting to treat this thing at least in the context of what I understand a, a spiritual relationship to be. Now, whether or not that is, you know, the 
the right way to think about a spiritual relationship and whether they've been conditioned to, you know, maybe, maybe they been conditioned to perceive spiritual relationships in a certain way and you know what whatever that is but at least it's it's knocking on that door and people are saying like i i uh, believe so strongly in what this represents and the the you know the behaviors that it either allows for or permits or uh you know the impact that it's going to have and all, all these things that like it's it's become a spiritual engagement for me not just yeah, solely an economic or social one. Um, and I'd love to get, you know, your, if you, if you had any words to expand on that, I'd love to hear them. Well, I think that they, they all sort of fuse up into like a single thing, like your, your politics becomes your spiritual, becomes your social, becomes your economic. And like they all fuse into like a single thing. And, uh, in all honesty, like I, I think getting to that place where this does become a spiritual thing is like the most important part of the whole process, because uh, I think the sort of uh, and I want to call it like a false nihilism, because uh, like I think Nietzsche at the bottom, like he he actually has this really powerful idea of like who God is and like how he functions in nature and doesn't call him that. But this false nihilism is one that's like emptied out of everything and like life is pointless and like there is no good, there is no evil, there's there's nothing beyond any of this. And I, I, I just think that that's bullshit. And I think that getting to the place where we realize that like, oh, this world is extremely fucked up, but like there are these bright spots and Bitcoin's one of them and the way that it can help me in my own life, you know, I, I think it is really important. And I think that as people go down this path and develop it more and more for themselves, like I, I think that this is one of the most critical places and being able to feel powerful, you know, and like I, I love the fact that the transactions that I do with Bitcoin are my own and that, you know, I can have privacy with them and that it does protect me, uh, you know, and, and furthermore, I, I think it's really important that, uh, you know, pe people can choose to buy whatever they want with, with their Bitcoin and, and not have any overseer or, or judge about that. And I think it's really beautiful. And I, I love the idea uh, of how this can help and protect other people. And I want to talk to them about that. And I want to spread that. And I want to give that to them, uh, you know, on one side, because yes, like getting more Bitcoiners in is going to make orange coin number go up and I will become wealthier because of that. And that's good. But much more important to me than that is the idea of, people really being able to have sovereign wealth to themselves, you know? And I think about the idea of uh, women living in impressive environments where they're beaten by their husband, or maybe they live in a religious family, the idea of abused children who are in extreme religious households of Christians in Pakistan and that want to buy a Bible, you know, like these are all really, really important things. Um, you know, like a lot of my own spiritual development ha has came from doing psychedelics. And I think the fact that people can buy psychedelics with Bitcoin is really important, you know, and I think it, it's really tragic that people have had uh, these tools taken away from them because of the way that they've been politicized, mm -hmm. you know. And so, like, I, I think the merging of all of these practices of, of political practice, social practices, of religious practices uh, is really important. And for me, I think it's really incredible that I have noticed this in other Bitcoiners. And I think that there's like a real sheepishness around it because it's almost like, who am I to declare that like Bitcoin has any of these religious or spiritual predications around it? You know, and I think the opposite is true. Like, 
like, who are these assholes to declare that, like, their God is, like, the real one, you know? And to me, like, that, that's been this really dangerous process of, like, the privatization of, of the word God. And that, like, that's how, how there's essentially, like, this official sanctioned God who, like, me or you or anybody else isn't entitled to. And that's just not true. Like, we're all entitled to a relationship with whomever we may think to be God and the way that they do that. And to me, one of the most sincere truths of my own is that, like, I think that Bitcoin is this really powerful apparatus that, like, has God at the heart of it because of the kind of truth that it entails and that, like, it has to entail and that, like, makes the entire system function. Um, and I really love that idea. And even if it comes off as sounding crazy and off kilter, like, that's fine. I've People have thought I've been crazy before for many other reasons, and I would much rather seem crazy for things that I sincerely believe in than to parrot the same bullshit that other people try to tell me about who God is or what spirituality is. One million percent. And, you know, I, I, th I think at least part of it is, you know, we've used the word freedom a bunch in this conversation, and, um, and that is obviously we've we've used it in relation to what bitcoin you know has the potential to provide people freedom in in various forms and perhaps you know the greatest form that that we've been able to establish and i th you know i think it's impossible to separate the concept of freedom from you know spiritual or religious uh you know engagements or beliefs because you know at the core of so many of them and i think you know if you go to a deep enough level Words like truth, love, freedom, like they start to commingle very deeply. You know, perhaps they're, you know, they're at, at core, they're, they're almost the same thing. But I, I think, you know, that's part of the reason why people develop such a quote unquote spiritual relationship with this thing is because they see that the freedom that it permits. And we know on either a conscious or subconscious level, like free, uh, well, maybe we don't know. This is my opinion. Freedom is, is the game, you know, freedom, the human freedom is, is for me, you know, one of the ultimate strivings, um, whether it's to freedom to express, to articulate, to interact, to exchange, to, to, to whatever, you know, and I think that the, the, the draw of freedom is so powerful that when we encounter something that uh, seeks to provide it or in our perception provides it, uh, you know, better or in a more kind of deep way than anything we've ever encountered, of course, there's going to be an incredibly deep connection and engagement with that thing that's going to seem like the same sort of orienting compass uh, in a way that, you know, religious or spiritual beliefs may have as well for, for similar reasons. Yeah. And like, I think that, uh, I think some people might like try to shy away from that, but, but I, you know, I think it's so important to, to dive deeper into that because the, these, these ideas of freedom, they all actually are one in the same. And uh, like part of my truth is, is because of the very real gift of the economic freedom that came from this, like it opened me up to the spiritual freedom of it, to, to uh, the political freedom of it. The, you know, I'm like, I, one thing like I really recognize is, is because of what Bitcoin has offered me, like there, there's an ability to be free in a way that was never possible before. 
you know, and that uh, I don't I don't have to worry about where my paycheck's coming from, from the perception that those people that are paying me are giving me of the idea that, um, you know, like to, to have my livelihood at stake based on how people see me. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that that Bitcoin gave me that this new and otherworldly freedom is really awesome and powerful. And I think part of that freedom is what we talked about earlier about, you know, just being able to turn around and say, fuck it, I'm fleeing off into the forest to do my own thing. Like fuck everybody else. Uh, and like, and again, that like, that's one aspect of this freedom, but another aspect of that freedom is actually on that totally opposite side is the freedom to engage deeper in this and to try to push it out into the world and try to encourage others to use it. Um, you know, and I, and I think, uh, Bitcoin both has these aspects of uh, the freedom from things and the freedom to things, you know, like I have the freedom from being spied upon. I have the f- the freedom from having my money uh, like tied up in a banking system that could be stolen from me. But I also have the freedom to transact with people. You know, I have the freedom to send money to a woman in Pakistan who could use that money. I have the freedom to, help a friend in Palestine who needs money. You know, I have the freedom to buy whatever drugs I want to because my mom has cancer or my dad, you know, needs some painkillers or whatever. And I think that that's such an important and powerful idea that we can unilaterally do things using this protocol and empowering ourselves than to need to seek permission. Um, And I think like as that idea plays inside of us, it, uh, it expands and pushes more. And I guess in a lot of ways, that's sort of the product uh, of what a lot of my essays are is from having this new freedom and getting to really think deeply about it. You know, like I, my background is not in philosophy and I wasn't <laughs> interested in it until I encountered Bitcoin. And uh, like the first major essay that I, I, or well, the first major philosophical text that I read um, was called The Sacrament of the Oath by Giorgio Ambigan. Because I was so curious about this idea of like, how is it that the protocol like maintains this oath to itself that like it can't break? And I've really been on, you know, essentially this eight year journey of research around that since then. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been really powerful because I very sincerely believe that uh, like Bitcoin is this breakthrough that is so far beyond an economic breakthrough, but it was like an actual linguistic and metaphysical breakthrough because of the truth that's contained in this new blockchain and essentially like the organizational form that allows for us to break out of the traditional sovereign structure. And, uh, I touch on this on one of my other essays that like, uh, the communes of, uh, like the 11th and 12th century throughout Europe, the, like the foundational oath that they had in it was called Einshofgrofen, which meant like fellowship oath. And so it was this sort of oath that like people took in mutualism to each other. So like you obey all these things or I kill you, I obey all these things or you kill me. Uh, And like, that's kind of similar to what Bitcoin is because it's this fellowship oath that we all maintain the protocols according to to what it is and that nobody has any special privilege in the system. Whereas pretty much every other legal system, if you will, has actors within it that have special powers that, kind of cause for the whole thing to, to not actually operate at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's super interesting, but one of the things that, uh, that you mentioned, you know, on this kind of freedom, uh, idea, I think a lot of us Bitcoiners probably have had 
the daydream, whether or not we're going to act on it, who knows, but of, you know, you're off in the forest, as you mentioned, you're off in the forest, you're completely independent, you know, your own energy, your own food, all the rest of it. And, you know, you, you said that when you, you know, you got this, the level of freedom that, that Bitcoin gave you from, you know, being into it early, the economic freedom it gave you, other forms of, you know, that freedom allowed you to think and express yourself in ways that previously you hadn't. Now, maybe that's because, you know, the different concerns and dependencies that you had just clouded or, or congested your mind. And so you couldn't have certain thoughts or you didn't, or you couldn't form them clearly, or you didn't have the time to, to flesh them out, whatever it is, but that freedom allowed for all of that. And, you know, it's so exciting to think about what kind of, you know, renaissance explosion in, in, in intellectual expression or thought that will result from more and more people feeling that sense of freedom that you articulated, you know, and how that, how it will manifest in the world, how that level of freedom will manifest in the world. It's, you know, it's just, it's another one of those things that I am. So I, I, I watch keenly and I'm so excited to see develop. Oh yeah. You know, and like, that's, like I said before, like we're just in the very beginning of this, you know, and like you, you think about what, the enlightenment was and like how that whole process took, you know, the better part of a century for it all to push out. And so to me, you know, like, uh, we're like in 1760 right now, you know, like we have some good stuff going on, but like it, it, it pales in comparison to what's going to come up in the next 30 years. Because mm -hmm. I think, uh, a lot of the foundational work that's already been laid down when the next generation comes in like they're going to have all of this stuff already created for themselves in addition to the permanence of what the protocol has accomplished over the last decade uh, and I think it's really important because eventually we'll get to this place of like look like what why is it that Bitcoin's just this non-state currency like why haven't banks been act actively using it why aren't central banks actively using it and like I think that this is where it starts to push into the political sphere. And I think it's also really important that uh, the questions of, well, is it Bitcoin or is it a blockchain or is it a database? And really teasing out these conversations because uh, I think that part of our dynasty is to use this technology to be able to expand people's freedom in really radical ways. And once we actually apply the technology to the political side, that we will see this kind of uh, explosion of really radical and new political methodologies. Because like the truth is, is our current political forms, like they're centuries old. And like, that's pretty crazy when we have, you know, this technology that allows for us to communicate across the globe instantaneously. And that allows for us to organize so much more broadly. Um, and I'm really excited about that. You know, like we're, and we're already seeing, a lot of the structures of it with, you know, like podcasts like this as being educational platforms with places like Twitter of being these sort of nascent public squares of political debate. Um, you know, and, and with Bitcoin staying at the center of all of this, I think it, it creates for this very radical and powerful future that like we, we really can't even comprehend at this point in time because of, uh, how different it is from mm. what stuff is today. Yeah. And, you know, another another 
line that I read in your writing, and I'm recalling it from memory, so I may butcher it a bit, but along these lines, I think it's relevant here, is you said that you know engaging with Bitcoin um, kind of validated your worldview. And I think that's another form of freedom. I mean, how many people walk around thinking, you know, one way in their head, but having, the, you know, the validation they get from the external world being completely counter or in, in, in some ways counter to that? And, and what kind of internal, um, you know, struggle or strife or, does that create in, in a person? But when, when their worldview is validated and they look out on the world and through they find the lens through which it makes sense, then navigating that world becomes, you know, in my opinion, not only easier, but more fun and more like just amplified in a positive way in many different domains. And so that's another way in which it, it bestows freedom is that, you know, it, it, I, I agree in that it, it, before I thought like, well, I'm thinking one way and the world is happening in a completely different way. What the fuck? But this is kind of, this is, been a bridge to the two and and kind of validated uh my worldview as well oh yeah you know and like i think an important aspect of that is like taking on the risk with bitcoin to try to like validate this worldview is really important and powerful because for me when when i did that and when it finally worked there was like this whole new breadth of freedom uh, of like my own self-confidence and ability and of like what I what I see in the world and that really helped me go out and be able to to make powerful investments of doing new and dramatically different things that I wouldn't have tried to engage with and I ultimately saw it uh, like it helped me lean deeper into that edge of what it meant to try to validate my worldview and understand it better and I think uh, before Bitcoin, I would have been very, very timid and trepidatious about it and uh, like unwilling to take kind of any sort of a speculative risk. But on the backside, like now I realize that like speculative risk is like really the only thing that we have outside of slaving away for somebody. And that like there are these small gaps and places where like we can take on some pretty extraordinary risk that, yes, it can mean losing a lot of money or clout or whatever else. But on the flip side, there's a capacity to make so much more, not just in terms of economic wealth, but of personal freedom, of personal empowerment, of any number of these things. And I think that uh, to me, the most important thing is, is Bitcoin helping support individual empowerment and helping people become who they're supposed to be. You know, like it's pretty clear to me at this point uh, while I wouldn't label myself as a, a philosopher, like I'm obviously very intrigued with these questions and spend a lot of my time and energy reading the, these books and stuff. And I would have never had that opportunity without Bitcoin. And it has helped make me into who I am today. And for that, I'm so profoundly grateful. And I really want to give that to other people, you know, and, and not just the economic aspect of it, but but the real personal assurance of that, like, hey, this money is yours. And I think that that's so important for these oppressed people. You know, like I, I have uh, one of my uncle-in-laws. He, he uh, you know, he spent a fair amount of his life in prison. And when he got out, you know, like it, it was 
a trouble for him to, to be able to save money, you know, and also explicitly because of the way that, you know, his relationship with the state and the way that they would, you know, take money for things. Mm -hmm. And so him being able to put that money aside for himself, you know, I think is really powerful and important. And I think, and I think that that self-assurance that he has, that he does have that money has allowed for him to do other stuff like, you know, choosing to, to start his own trucking business as opposed to continuing to work as a trucker. And to me, like that's where, that's where all the most powerful stuff is going to come from is once people, and while it's a subtle shift, it's a really important one is to like have the real self-esteem that like this is wealth that is safe for them. And it's committed to this purpose in their future. And that like nobody can take that away from them. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, Eric, I know you got to shoot off. So this is the last question, but you know, on the concept of freedom and uh, you know, I'm, I'm never shy of exposing my audience to uh, my views on, on psychedelics, but you did, you mentioned it. And I was just wondering, you know, this could be its own podcast in itself, of course, but you know, what was the interplay for you between, you know, your experiences in that domain and your concept or experience of freedom or, or how it oriented your thinking around that? Um, so I remember the first time that I did acid, I remember I was coming up uh, and there was this moment where like this shift kind of happened uh, where like my entire worldview shifted and like everything became okay. And I like really got it for a minute and I understood sort of the, uh, the topsy turvy, like lamfoony way that like everything kind of plays out in this world. Uh, but for me, it was really important to like kind of realize that there was this curtain that I could like look under the, where all this other stuff was going on. That was really beautiful and fantastical and like infinite. And the way that, uh, I used to live on, on a property that had a flower farm. And I remember walking through kind of the, the flower area with all these amaryllis bulbs blooming and just realizing, uh, just like the compassion and love that God had for us with giving us this world and the ability to see all of these things. Uh, you know, and also like I was able to, to secure these psychedelics with my Bitcoin. And so for me, uh, like sort of having these two things come head to head, like I felt so wonderful, you know, cause also like I, I, I'm a, I'm a kind of an anxious guy. So bef before Bitcoin, the whole idea of trying to get drugs was always this like really scary process of like oh god the police could just come and like beat the crap out of me at any point in time uh so like there was this extra point i remember of actually like feeling this profound amount of gratuity that like i you know i could i could use one of these darknet markets to securely and safely get these psychedelics and like have this really profound spiritual experience that like the state not only is made illegal, but like they want to bring violence to me for having this experience uh, was just this really profound and validating experience of realizing that my values as an anarchist are important. The discovery I personally made with Bitcoin and the protections it offers me. And then finally, you know, ultimately being able to have this very deep and profound spiritual experience where like I finally saw and encountered my own God and like knew that he was just the totality of love that produces itself in the world and nature and all these small, but very positive things, you know, and I, I uh, feel deeply grateful for it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it is the most important experience I've, I've had in my life because 
of the way that I got to truly transcendentally touch this other experience that uh, seems so ludicrous to me for so long, <laughs> you know, and like, like I would hear people talk about this stuff and it just seemed farcical. But when I actually like had those experiences, that, that first experience mainly, um, yeah, like there was just a profound, profound sense of relief and like, thank God that this is, yeah, thank God that this is real and that I can touch this, you know? And, uh, um, and, and, and frankly, like that's one of the things that I've noticed with, uh, a lot of Bitcoiners seem to have gotten on the psychedelic train. And I think it's really important because, uh, we're so devoid of spirituality in this culture that, you know, we, we really can believe that this idea of spirituality and God is a farce and that it's just some made up bullshit thing to try to control us all the more. Uh, and I think it's so tragic because like, while that mainly is true, there is also something else there that is very real and powerful and personal. And I hope everybody gets an opportunity to touch it because it's really important for developing who we are. And I feel so appreciative to Ross Ulbrich for developing the Silk Road and for presenting this methodology for people to be able to safely acquire drugs. Um, I hope that he gets pardoned and is free at some point in time. And I feel really grateful that there are other Bitcoiners out there that get to have these experiences too, and that they can do them safely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's a pretty large and relatively hidden part of our culture that, uh, I hope pushes deeper too. Cause you know, while psychedelics are, are very, very powerful tools and they're a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I also think that they're really important for spiritual development and I hope that people will be open to trying and experimenting with them, even if they're fearful because of what powerful spiritual processes that they can provide. And actually fun note is one of the reasons I started uh, doing LSD was because uh, I'd been an alcoholic for a long time and really struggled with alcoholism. And when I read that Bill W really strongly believed that LSD should have been part of the AA program, I decided to try it and I really understand why. Yeah, you know, it really helped me recover from my illness, and you know, I haven't drank for years now. Yeah, it's that's that's a fairly common, uh, fairly common story, and you know, I I know these are very very difficult experiences to articulate. I mean, nigh impossible, really, but we try as we might to put some words around them just to try to capture some of the the essence of, of these, uh, ineffable experiences. But, you know, I, I think you did a, a pretty good job at doing that. And, uh, maybe someday we'll get the chance to, to speak about them further, but just to echo your sentiment that, um, th these provide access to an experience that is so, uh, so, you know, so incredibly valuable to uh, a human being if approached correctly, and uh, I, like you said, I think, uh, you know, Bitcoin, I think a lot of times Bitcoiners rejected, you know, so many things when they started to, you know, for lack of a better term, see the matrix for what it was. So you just, you end up rejecting everything. No, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. And then you have to kind of slowly add back what is real and truthful and genuine. And so I think religion kind of got, you know, 
the baby got thrown out with the bathwater in a sense in that case. And I think perhaps, you know, through psychedelics and, and other practices, but, you know, in my experience, psychedelics has been, you know, the, the way to access these experiences in the most reliable and intense way um, is starting to kind of maybe pull people back into uh, a life that involves uh, some kind of spiritual connection. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for, for this great conversation. It was uh, really great to, to get to share this with you. And I really appreciate that you went through some of my writings and got to ask me some, some really great and, and poignant questions. Well, man, I, I really appreciate you giving me the time, being so open with, uh, with your background and your story and your thinking, putting out all the, the great writing that you have been doing. And uh, yeah, man, just, just keep up the great work. And uh, I can't wait till we get the chance to, have, to do this again in the future. Absolutely. I look forward to it as well, John, and I hope that you have a great, wonderful rest of your day. You too, brother. Take care. All right. Be well. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.